Super glad to have you with us this morning, friends, uh, especially on this Resurrection Sunday. Hey, uh, we're super glad that if this is your first time here, you've come on a Sunday where um, we're celebrating the reason we are here today, the reason we have new life, the reason why we have hope in a world that's broken and messed up and where fears chain us to the sin that we hold so dear as if that's going to help us. So we're glad you're here for this Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate resurrection, both of Christ, His resurrection, and our own spiritual rebirth. Um, If you're new here, I'm Scott. I'm lead pastor here at First Christian Church. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be in Matthew 27 and 28. We're going to start in Matthew 27, verse 62 today, as it gives us some helpful context for heading into Matthew 28. If you need a Bible, uh, there are guest services, peeps coming down the aisles who can hook you up with uh, a Bible. Um, we also have study guides for this series if you need a study guide. That's what we use as our curriculum to interact with a sermon throughout the week. We use that for our small groups um, as well. It has... Uh, Space for taking notes and sermons. It's got daily Bible readings that go with the sermon thematically. And it has questions that we use for our small groups. Um, But if you're not in a small group yet, if you're not in a life group, you can take that study guide and go ahead and use it as a way to sort of continue to interact with and live out the truth that we're going to be talking about today in the Word. So I want you to turn to 27, Matthew 27. We're going to start at verse 62. We're going to spend a lot of time at the end of 27 to help give us some context to, to go into uh, chapter 28 there. And we'll read that in just a second. Uh, before we read that, I want to let you know um, what's coming up the next couple Sundays before we read that. Um, next week, we have our friends Joshua and Ruth Barron, who will be presenting uh, for us throughout the entire time of our worship service. Um, They're going to share with us about the work that God is doing through them and their work as missionaries in Kenya to the Ma people. We've supported them for a couple years, and we're going to do Mission Sunday um, next Sunday. So come, hey, yeah, they've got 17 kids. Um, (laughs) And they homeschool. Surprise, surprise. Um, Lots of cool stuff planned for them. A bunch of them are here today. And if you heard some uh, trumpet from back there today, that was Josh. there as well. So lots of cool stuff planned next week that you want to be here for um, to talk about how the gospel continues to change lives uh, all over the world. And then after that, the next series we start four weeks in a series called, uh, called God and Culture. God and Culture is a really cool series that provides um, a biblical and a theological basis for valuing and participating in cultural and artistic creation. It helps believers understand how to think about and how to engage in the wider culture um, and and in the arts by showing how God values beauty and creativity. And he's made each of us to be creators after his image so that what we do produces things and culture that glorify God. So really cool stuff in that series. want to have you join us for those four weeks. We're going to talk about planting gardens, uh, planning cities, uh, producing art, and uh, praising God in that order. So cool stuff there in that series. Let's go ahead and read together Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. And then we'll pray and jump in to our time in the Word together. Matthew 27, 62 says this. 
The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, open our hearts today to hear from you, that we would follow your lead and say yes to your direction. Forgive us for stubbornly living as if as if we know what, what satisfaction and peace and contentment and joy look like without you. Forgive us for the hubris we display as we live our lives on our own terms, suggesting by the use of the resources you've given to us that we know better than you, the creator of all. So, Father, correct us. Instruct us. Give us your wisdom today from your word. We are in desperate need of salvation that comes from you alone. Lord, we're in desperate need of looking into that empty tomb and celebrating that you break us free from the chains of our own sin. Instruct us toward that end. Teach us your freedom. Give us your spirit that we would say yes to your calling and your direction for our lives so that we could live with resurrection power. In the name of the risen Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as someone who has been in ministry about uh, closing in on 25 years now, as someone who's been doing this for a little while, I should know better <laughs> than to sort of commiserate with somebody during the week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Um, commiserate's a big fancy word that means to have misery with somebody. Um, so I, I should know better than to complain about how hard it is to write an Easter sermon. <laughs> um, because, let's be frank, you know how this ends, right? <laughs> Um, if you don't, don't worry, we'll tell you. Um, but, but I should know better than to sort of, you know, commiserate with somebody about how hard it is to preach a sermon that everybody knows the ending to. Because as soon as I say something to the effect of like, man, I just don't know what I'm going to be telling these people on Easter Sunday, but they haven't heard 10,000 times before. Because as soon as I talk about how hard it is to, you know, come up with something new about a story where we all know the ending, somebody like my dad, perhaps has some sort of smart-alecky thing to say to me, like, how hard can it be? The tomb is empty. Tell them that, pray, and close the service. <laughs> I thought we might get some people who kind of feel like my dad. <laughs> yeah, it's that easy. The tomb's empty. Go home and get some candy. By the way, at what point does dipping into your child's candy become a, a sinful act? That's what I woke up thinking about today. <laughs> the difficulty every sort of Easter morning for the preacher kind of is the same every year because everybody here today knows the end of this story, right? 
Like you know how this thing's going to turn out. The tomb's empty. I'm not up here today with some sort of rhetorical magic at the end where everybody goes, whoa, I get it now. And yet, every year I preach this sermon and people come away with a sense of weight about what resurrection means that they didn't understand before. And that's our hope for you today. As we study this passage, as we look through what Matthew has to report to us, we'll see this turn that Matthew makes in the text to take us to a place that sees that only God who created all that is, who has all power and majesty and glory, only God can make an empty tomb happen. And that's how he sets up the text. So we're going to spend some time in 27, at the end of 27, sort of simmering over some details that set up that turn where we see that God alone has the power to make resurrection happen. So let's jump in. Where he starts in verse 62. And he says, and we're going to spend some extra time on these first uh, five verses here. He says this, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now press pause. We're going to spend some time here on this verse. Because Matthew's giving us a lot of helpful context here in just verse 62. It's pregnant with a lot of meaning that we need to understand. So when Matthew says it's the next day after the day of preparation, he is making clear that it was Saturday, the day of Jewish worship, that's called Sabbath. So Friday, which was the day of crucifixion, was the day of preparation, as he calls it here, because you had to get all your food ready, you had to have all your fares in order for Saturday, because Sabbath was when God had commanded his people to worship and to rest on Sabbath. And you couldn't worship and rest if you're running around, getting food and things in order, right? Like, like I mean, you can't worship and rest if you're out mowing the yard. Can I get a witness? Old school Bible thumpers. I'm, I'm, I'm JKing new peeps, don't worry. So the reason Matthew is emphasizing all this about what day it was becomes clear at the end of verse 62. Look at that. He says this, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, which to us may not sound like a big deal, right? Like, okay, they gathered, big deal. They got together. But let's, but let's, Let's not get to empty tomb and candy yet until we simmer on what's going on here in this verse right here. Let the context simmer a bit before we get to empty tomb because Matthew's telling us something important here. It's Sunday. It's, I'm sorry, it's Saturday, Sabbath, which for them at the time was a day of worship and rest and, you know, watching football. Not being outside mowing and gardening and working. And Sabbath was especially not about work and, and sort of scheming politically, like what's going on here. And here we have two politically and even theologically opposed parties, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They weren't exactly friends, and they had serious disagreements about Jewish doctrine, as well as how to carry that out in the world. So political disagreements as well. And so they pretty seriously, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they pretty seriously dislike each other. And they come together to take care of business here. They come together because something big is going down. Think of it sort of like leaders in Washington coming together 
to cross the aisle for something important, right? Like we, we, we have here three politically and theologically different parties, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the Romans coming together, which means something serious is going down here in the context. Here in Matthew 27, verse 66, something serious is going down that requires all the powers that be who pretty seriously dislike each other to come together to take care of that business. Think of it like our, our Washington leaders coming together on the magnitude of something like World War III that it would have to be for them to be together. Am I preaching yet, right? Like, like if you were to see Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton come out of the White House arm in arm to a press conference. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So three different parties who do not work together, work together <laughs> on a day they wouldn't normally work at all, let alone together. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered before Pilate. And the Jewish leader said, this is verse 63, Sir, this is them sort of ingratiating themselves to Pilate, flattering him to curry favor. Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said while he was still alive, meaning they knew him to be dead, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise, quoting Jesus. Notice the historical detail that Matthew includes here. While he was still alive. Apparently, the Jewish leaders knew Jesus to have already been dead. <laughs> right? Which puts to rest, by the way, the sort of swoon theory that says that Jesus wasn't actually dead. He was like mostly dead. Thank you. That can only be true if the Romans don't know how to actually kill people. Right? Are we to take them to be that unaware? So the Jews and the Romans here were apparently quite clear on two things. Number one, Jesus was dead. And number two, he had predicted that he would rise from the dead after three days. In a way which apparently they took seriously enough as a threat for them to do something about, to go across the aisle, to come together. We feeling it yet? There's some real tension in this moment here that Matthew wants us to feel. So they say, sir, we remember how that imposter Jesus said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. And what do they do? They do everything they can to keep Jesus' body in the tomb. Think about this for a bit here. They do everything within their power to keep Jesus' body in the tomb. Verse 64. We're going to pick up some speed here. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. This is the Jewish leader speaking to Pilate. Like make it Fort Knox. Nothing coming in, nothing going out. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, th this is remarkable here. And maybe you weren't aware of this, but we have the Gospel of Matthew as a historical evidence that the Jewish leaders actually conspired to keep Jesus in the tomb so that the disciples wouldn't steal him so that they could say, see, just like he claimed, he's risen from the dead, just like he said. And, and this historical detail that Matthew includes here is what sets up this sort of ironic turn that Matthew wants us to see. Keep reading. Verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. He gives them soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by doing two things, stealing the stone and setting a guard. So the tomb is secured here in, uh, in two different ways, by stealing the stone and by setting a guard, it says. Now, stealing the stone didn't simply mean like rolling the stone over the entrance to the tomb. That was already done. Stealing the stone meant taking it away, verifying the dead body inside the tomb, indeed it's dead, and then putting the stone back and then pressing wax or clay between the stone and the tomb entrance, and then stamping the stone with the imperial uh, seal of the Roman, uh, the Roman royalty and government. And setting a guard meant <laughs> sending either the, the temple police or most likely the Roman soldiers themselves to ensure that nothing happened to the tomb upon a threat of their own death if something did happen. So clearly they're doing everything they possibly can within their power to ensure that nothing happens to that body. And here's the ironic turn in this story that Matthew is setting up for us, especially in 62 to 6 here. He's wanting us to see this for how it highlights God's sovereign power to defy death. Think about this. The exact means of securing the grave that the powers that be used to ensure that Jesus couldn't possibly be stolen. The exact means served to ensure that the only thing that could explain the removal of Jesus' body from the tomb is the power of God. Verses 62 through 66, Matthew gives us because they're meant to show us that these extra measures that they took in their human power and control to ensure that the disciples themselves didn't steal Jesus' body, those extra measures only served to make the point even clearer that only a supernatural power beyond human power and control can make life happen after death. We preach it yet. Turns out, they didn't account for God the grave robber. Turns out God himself was the grave robber that the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and the Romans didn't count on. Listen, only God's power can defy death. Only God's power can defy death. So let's read together Matthew's account of God's power over death, starting with verse 1 in chapter 28. We're just going to read this together. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. 
and there they will see me. What the earthly powers that be who were ultimately carrying out the evil one's plans against the Messiah, what the earthly powers that be didn't count on was the power of God to do what only God to do, can do, to rob the grave and to raise Jesus from the dead. The lesson today is really simple, friends. <laughs> the only thing that can actually explain the removal of Jesus' body from that tomb is God's sovereign power to defy death. Contrary to the lies we believe about our power and control in the world. God alone has the power and control over sin and death. God alone is sovereign. This is an idea that is throughout the Scriptures. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus sustains all things by His powerful Word. Colossians 1.17 says that in Him, in Christ, all things hold together. Second Chronicles 20 claims that God can rule alone over all the kingdoms of the nations and no one can withstand Him. Job 41 says, who is able to stand against Him? Job 42 says, I know that you alone can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14 says, the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul that? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Psalm 89 says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of death and hell? The message is clear throughout the entire scriptures and the witness of those who have gone before in Matthew. God alone is the sovereign power over the entire universe and our lives. And no action of humankind will turn aside his power. Neither the opposition of the Jewish leaders nor the power of the Roman soldiers nor the ignorance of the disciples could stop the resurrection from happening. And listen, only resurrection can explain the incredible change of those first followers. The incredible change from self-centered cowards who deserted Jesus in his greatest moment of need to become world-changing spiritual giants who were willing to die for the cause because they looked into that empty tomb for themselves. And either God is God and powerful beyond human description and control or understanding, or we are forever dead in our sin. Those are the options. Do not deceive yourself into this belief that there's some middle road between those two options that you, out of everybody in history, are going to be able to manage for yourself. This is huge if you will hear it. This is huge if you will hear it. Either God is God and powerful beyond all human understanding, Or we are forever dead in our own sins. 
So the question at the end is simply this. What is your plan? What is your plan to defy death? Because be real with yourself. You've got one. You just may not be aware of it. What's your plan to defy death? More organic food? Paying more for better and more organic and more expensive and supposedly more healthy skin cream? Cryogenics? How do you think those are going to work out as a plan to defy death? You see, death is the end. It's the end of life for all who sin. And the Bible says clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if the tomb was empty, then death is not the end of life for all who have sinned and who know a Savior. It may sound silly, but it's actually quite serious. What is your plan? What is your plan to defy death? I hope today you will go away knowing the only possible plan you can have, the only hope you have, is the grace of God extended to you through new life in Christ. I hope and I pray that your plan is the new life that is made possible because the empty tomb of Jesus is there as a demonstration that earthly powers couldn't hold God back. He loved you that much to overcome the powers of death and hell, to raise Jesus so that you don't have to raise yourself. What is your plan to defy death? Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, forgive us for our insolence, for our selfishness, for the hubris we display, the self-centeredness out of which we live, when we put together the resources that are yours and that you made and that you gave us in ways that are an attempt to defy death by ourselves. Lord, we're forever grateful that there's an empty tomb that is a picture, us, a picture for us today of your power, of your sovereign control, of your will. Lord, give us the strength and courage to say yes to you as Lord of our lives. Trusting that you alone in the person of Jesus were adequate to overcome the sin that we cannot overcome. Lord, speak to us in our hearts. Use your Holy Spirit to move us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, real briefly, I want to uh, just extend what we call uh, an invitation. Um, it's a time where we invite you to respond in whatever way appropriate and helpful um, and, and most needful for you. Um, we like to say that the gospel demands a response. Um, and, and so each Sunday we say, hey, what's, what's next for you as a response to, um, to the truth of the gospel?
the gospel is the good news that the tomb was empty. And so uh, maybe today for you is a day uh, to be baptized, uh, which, which is for us is a symbol of that death to self. It's saying, I humble myself to depend on you, God, and being raised to new life in Christ, just like the empty tomb coming out of the waters is the demonstration that our dependency, our adequacy, our fullness, our completion is in him alone, and he does it for us because we are dead to ourselves and raised to new life. So maybe that's um, a time for you today um, in the waters of baptism to declare publicly your faith in Christ. And we'd love to come alongside with you in that. Our water's warm. We got t-shirts. Also, if you're thinking about um, becoming what we call a member here at First Christian, uh, a member is just a word that means a part of the whole. And for us to be a member at First Christian means to stand up here and to say publicly, Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. And we we take that to be a, a, a... a declaration of you being a part of the body of Christ. And that's a covenant for us to you as well, um, to be a place that models Christ-likeness for you so that you can grow. Um, so maybe today is a day for you to become a member uh, of a local body that loves you and wants to care for you. Also, if you need something to be praying about, if there's something that's weighing on you, maybe you have questions about this whole empty tomb thing, this Jesus stuff. Baptism is what? Uh, Maybe you've got questions naturally about all those kinds of things. Maybe you're not sure about following Jesus, uh, but you know the Lord is uh, speaking to you. Um, We'd love to come alongside with you in that. Um, If you have something that's a burden for prayer, we'd love to come alongside with you and pray about that too. Our friends here from the care team are here to be with you. So um, we're going to stand just a second here and sing. Um, If you want to respond in any way appropriate and helpful for you, we'd love to come alongside you in that. Let's go ahead.